Hi, this is Tim Brooks, and you're listening to Bluegrass Jamalong, the podcast for anyone and everyone who plays bluegrass. Welcome to Bluegrass Jamalong, Tim Brooks. Um, Tim is on the podcast because... Tim has written a great book called Guitar and American Life, which looks at not only how a guitar is made, but sort of what guitar means as a as a symbol in American culture um, and how it came to be the guitar we know today because it didn't start out that way. Um, and it's just fascinating, you know, for those of us who play this instrument, there's, there's so much we don't know about it uh, that we can learn and so much sort of cultural context. So I'm really looking forward to it. Um, yeah, Tim, welcome to the podcast. Um, thanks for having me. So I, my sort of introduction to you was, um, it was my 50th birthday last year and I gave friends a list of books, a massive list of books and said, pick me anything off that list. And they all clubbed together and bought me everything on that list. And one of those, one of those books was your book. Um, and it was the first one I read and just thought, well, this is great. There's a, there's a story, not only the story of the guitar, um, going alongside that is a story of, of sort of your journey of having a guitar built for you. Um, and I love that sort of dual thing of a history, but also a personal story, because I think that's often the best way to tell history is through a, a sort of personal lens. And I wondered sort of if you could explain how you came to write the book in the first place. Yeah, sure. Um, so as you can tell by my uh, extraordinarily strong accent, I was born in London and uh, grew up in England. Um, and Shortly before I left the country, um, I by then I was sort of scratching together a living by uh, many different uh, ways, one of which was um, playing guitar, you know, in, in pubs and wine bars and whatnot. And um, I had spent every penny I, um, I had and some that I didn't to buy a filed. Um, so a filed, you know, acoustic guitar uh, made by Roger up in the north of England. Um, yeah. That was sort of my my ideal guitar, and uh, so I bought that in 1980, I think. Um, and so um, I wound up in the U.S. Um, and uh, I did some professional playing and, and some not because I had discovered that I really didn't like playing and breathing in other people's smoke. <laughs> um, and. Um, Anyway, so uh, um, it then also became the, the guitar that I played to both my daughters when they were born, you know, and we would sing along and whatnot. And, um, and one day I was um, coming back from a trip uh, and the guitar got smashed by United Airlines. There's a wow. long tradition of, you know, of United <laughs> Airlines. There's even a video and a song, actually. Yeah, about, yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, so my then wife said, well, look, you know, your 50th birthday is coming up. Um, and, and as we know, as you've already said, you know, 50 is that key number. It's when yeah. we, uh, we start becoming what we wanted to be, you know, all along. Um, she said, uh, why don't you um, buy yourself, uh, you know, a decent guitar as your birthday present? And, and I realized that there was, there was a kind of hyperbole in in this this invitation because we had no money i couldn't afford mm. a decent guitar but if i bought a guitar and wrote about it it became business expense brilliant and so um that was right <laughs> right in there um and and the first chapter of the book is really about 
what a strange process it is and and how much you learn about yourself and the guitar if you have the chance to buy the guitar you really want because i started discovering all kinds of um prejudices and preferences that i had no idea uh, existed I, i you know i've always had guitars apart from the filed that were totally crummy, that were, you know, that literally were free or had been thrown away or whatever. Um, and so to say, what, what do you want in a guitar was very much like saying, who do you want to be as a person? Who are you as a person? Um, the other thing that I began to discover, and, and you sort of touched on this in your introduction, is that the guitar is the most intimate of instruments. Um, we got this great quote um, uh, from um, a Brazilian guitarist who had been given um, um, a guitar by her brother, um, who was very famous, the, one of the Assad brothers. And she saw where the, um, the finish had been worn off on the upper bout, where he's, he'd rested his bearded chin. Mm-hmm. On, the, on the guitar while, you know, while resting or rehearsing or whatever. And, of course, the guitar, as you play it, it actually vibrates into your solar plexus. You know, you, you mm-hmm. embrace and you surround the instrument. Um, and uh, so I thought, well, this is, this is really interesting. And um, I decided that I wanted a guitar that had been made by somebody who made every guitar by hand, who lived up a dirt road, you know, in Vermont somewhere, and was this kind of very, very master slash hippie um, artisan. And mm. I discovered, that sure enough, this guy who at the time was the president of the um, American Association of Stringed Instrument Artisans, um, lived up a dirt road not that far from me. And I, I went to see him, and, and two things happened on that visit. Uh, which really changed everything. One was that I saw on his workbench, um, he had the, the neck of a guitar, which um, the, the position markers were not your standard, you know, circles or dots or whatever. They were uh, maple leaves um, in, in abalone, and they were all at different angles. So they were like as if they were falling out of the trees outside. And that was what made me realize that the filed had been the guitar for the English half of my life. And now I wanted a guitar for the American half of my life. Hmm. The other thing that happened was that I saw on his wall the ugliest guitar ever made. Hmm. Uh, And believe me, I've done research. And it was, of all things, a McAfee. So McAfee, as some of your listeners know, was this guy who was originally a concert guitarist and then he had an accident and he became a guitar maker and he had these really advanced ideas about acoustics and having a a box suspended within the box so that there would be less um, friction on the outside of the box that would dampen the sound. And of course, most famously, um, uh, he made some for Selma, which Django Reinhardt played. And so that's how he became known. Little did I know that he then left France um, around the time of the Second World War, wound up in America, somehow got connected with DuPont, who were making the first plastics, and got convinced that the future was plastic guitars. 
And so this is this plastic guitar with this absurdly ornate kind of Rococo headstock. Um, and it was hideous. But I had this thought that the guitar is so, because it's not an orchestral instrument, and it's therefore not bound by tradition in the way many others are, it is so sensitive to um, uh, local influences, local in time and space and culture, that if you look at a guitar, you can tell everything, not only about who made it, but about where and when it was made and what was happening in that society at that time. And that's when I realized this book, as you say, was going to be two books. It was going to be me writing about this guy, Rick Davis, making me this guitar, but also um, this sense that the guitar becomes a kind of an index or a symptom of its times, especially its musical times and, and, and its place. Yeah, and there's a couple of really interesting things in there, I think. And one of them is you sort of touched on the idea of going down the journey of build me the perfect guitar for me. But that's quite a pressure to know what you want. Um, and just from even basic things like having a bathroom redone in your house, you suddenly realise there's a million one decisions you'd never even considered, like what kind of valves you want and what colour you want the taps to be and that, like you know the pull cord on the light and stuff that you don't really give a monkey's about on a good day. But mm-hmm. you suddenly confront, and, and with a guitar, there's all these things. And if you, you'll probably only get a guitar made for you once in your life. And so you're, you're partly you need to learn quickly, and partly you're in the hands of the person who's making it for you to guide you a bit as well. Very much so. And um, Rick was a wonderful person to work with because he has this very modern sense of humor as well as being very knowledgeable. And so, for example, he had this saying, um, clients start out wanting the best guitar they can afford and they end up wanting the best guitar ever made. And it is a journey because at the beginning, you know, he would say, what kind of nut width do you want? I have, I have no idea. It's like, is that like an obscene reference of some kind, you know, <laughs> measuring me for a jock strap? Um, and, um, you know, what kind of um, saddle and bridge do you want? And so he, uh, you know, is a very experienced builder. So he sort of took me through all of this. And bit by bit, it became clear that things like um, I wanted a, a wider fingerboard because I play finger style. And so therefore, there's, there's, a, lot of, there's a lot of finger on that fingerboard at any given time. Yeah. Um, whereas bluegrass um, players, especially flat pickers, um, they tend to want to be able to move around fast. Um, they tend to have a narrower neck. They're typically playing, you know, one, two, maybe three fingers on, you know, at any given time. Um, they typically want uh, a pretty strong um, bass sound, you know, and the dreadnought winds up being the the, the de facto bluegrass guitar. Mine. Um, was something that was going to be a little closer to a classical guitar or, or a little closer to, you know, the classic um, um, sort of uh, concert Martin-style guitars. Yeah. But then there's all kinds of other things happen. Like I realized that if we were going to go with these um, maple leaf um, position markers, they they actually go through time. So... Um, on the um, on the fifth fret, for example, um, you've got a maple leaf. Sure enough, as you get further up the neck, they change to snowflakes. 
And then as you get even further up the, the neck, they, they're like little chips of ice, you know. So it's a, it's a wonderful statement, not only of the passage of time, but classic Vermont pessimism. You know, you may think things are pretty now, but they're going to get worse. <laughs> I, I guess that's, um, there's a whole conversation there that I'm sure we'll get onto later about uh, ornamentation from little details through to, you know, the guitar sort of almost being secondary to the decoration sometimes. And that's a, you know, that's something that's developed over the years too. But another thing you mentioned there um, is sort of the idea of a guitar as a barometer of the culture and of, of the, and I, I think that's one of the most fascinating threads of the book really is that it's called Guitar in American Life. But as you point out relatively early on, um, the sort of, in the early 20th century, there wasn't really any such thing as American culture. Everything was much more regional. There wasn't a homogenized thing in the way that there was maybe in the 50s and 60s that, that we as Brits would recognize as American culture and Americans would recognize in a different way. But, but that certainly wasn't a thing, you know, 100 years ago. Um, so that's true in, in, in many ways. Um, and it turns up and it manifests itself in the guitar and other music in, in many ways. Um, just to pick a couple of examples at random, and if I'm going too far, you know, you can, you know, yank me back again. So in the 1880s, um, the guitar was, uh, I have this line that the guitar has always been uh, the instrument of introverts and seducers um, because it's, it's, it's quiet, you know, it's the, it's the thing that, that you do close together. You know, the saxophone may seduce, but it's not an introvert's instrument, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, the, the guitar was used in this pre-broadcast era for a social entertainment. And so it was a subject taught at um, girls' schools. Um, but equally, um, boys, um, you know, a young man who played the guitar was a valuable thing to have. And then as now, it was a courtship instrument. Everything changes with um, the arrival of, of um, a couple of different things. Uh, one is the arrival of uh, the reinforced piano with the metal frame. So the piano, um, which was sold in these, uh, these, these extraordinary kind of used car ways, um, all over the country. Um, so, for example, it was sold as a Christian instrument, um, and uh, the uh, they were the, the piano uh, salespeople were very keen to get this kind of Christian singing hymns around the piano kind of endorsement. Um, it was sold very much like a used car by traveling piano salesmen in the early twentieth century. Where well, wow, that's um, a job. Yeah, exactly. But what they would do, they were so smart. They would say, you know what, we'll just drop one off, you know, hang on to it and see if you like it. Um, and the, often the piano was the only piece of finished furniture in the house. And so it became sort of indispensable very quickly. Um, there was this whistle stop tour um, of um, across America where some entrepreneur uh, booked a train. And he had something like 102 pianos and, hmm. and they would travel to these small towns and, and wheel these pianos out. I mean, goodness knows they must have had good ramps and, and stuff. And, duck yeah, yeah. Um, and they would play the work of the great European masters, especially the great dramatic European masters on 102 pianos. It was the first rock music. You know, people in these small towns had rarely seen live music at all. But to have this arrive, you know, hmm. it was it was triumphant. But it was also very Eurocentric. And um, uh, 
along with the arrival of the piano came the um, fear of the um, immigration by Italians in particular, but also um, uh, the Irish and on the West Coast by the Chinese. Um, and so there was a very strong sense that these were culturally undesirable. They brought, um, you know, all kinds of behavior and all kinds of music that that uh, the, the Brahmins of, of um, you know, the Upper West Side or of Boston felt was going to undermine American culture. And so that's when you first get um, the, the billionaires of their time paying for um, uh, um, opera houses and orchestral halls and, um, and actual orchestras. And luckily, the, the guitar was excluded at that time from those orchestras because it was seen as being too much of a folk instrument. Um, but the, the best illustration of, of this, and, and I, I never tire of knocking Gibson, by the way. There's, 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 it's, like, it's like banjo jokes. There, there's just not enough of them in the world. Um, <clears throat> so, um, so Gibson um, started out as a, a reactionary against the arrival of the bowlback mandolin as a, a manifestation of Italian culture. And I have a copy of an ad which shows the Gibson broom sweeping these mandolins, which were also colloquially known as potato bug mandolins, in back into the uh, Atlantic. You know, we're wow. going to send them back because we're going to have true American flatback Gibson mandolins. And in fact, the Gibson company was originally the Gibson Mandolin Company. Then it became the Gibson Mandolin and Guitar Company. And the first um, guitar was clearly designed like a, a mandolin. Um, it's just like a larger mandolin because mandolin orchestras were suddenly all of the rage at the time. So, um, yeah, it's, <clears throat> excuse me, the rise and fall of the guitar, um, as you say, very strongly regional, uh, very strongly connected with, uh, was it popular with the, the wealthier classes at that time? Because periodically it was, you know, in 17th century France, it was in 18th century um, England, it was, although that was more a Portuguese guitar. Um, but it would, the guitar did this, this amazing kind of rise and fall over time when um, the first of the Bourbon kings or Bourbon kings, Charles V, became Holy Roman Empire and moved his court to Spain. He banned guitars um, because they were too Spanish. You know, they, they represented Spanish identity and, um, and, and he was afraid there would be um, anti-French and the inter okay, the interesting point there is that um sort of the from a a bluegrass point of view that you make the point in the book that the fiddle and the banjo are much more um widely spread instruments in Appalachia particularly but you know the guitar wasn't considered part of that tradition and it was a much a much mm -hmm. later mm -hmm. thing um and that tradition of fiddle tunes brought over from Europe and you know the the ballads and the old songs right at the beginning of the, the 20th century. But then sort of around, there's a couple of things. Is, is on, on one side, the guitar becomes adopted by people like Mabel Carter and Jimmy Rogers and becomes a bit of a symbol of a kind of music. But at the same time, the guitar itself develops sort of around that period to become the guitar as we know it today. 
Um, and I wonder if you could just sort of run us through a little bit of how the, the instruments sort of became adopted before we move on to the design changes that happened. Yeah, yeah. So in Appalachia, and, and I've been there and I've seen this, people play with whatever they can make. So the whole presentation Martin, you know, which people say, well, this must be the instrument of its period because here it is and we can see it and it's beautiful and it's inlaid with pear wood and all this kind of thing. It's like, no, that's that survived because a wealthy family owned it. Hmm. So I have met a banjo player who was playing with thumb and, and one finger because he progressively lost all the other fingers down the coal mines. And he said the first um, banjo he learned on, he first he played, um, and this is, this is just very traditional, um, the drum was made of a raccoon skin, and the tradition was you would leave the raccoon tail on. Hmm. So it would, it would kind of be a, um, a, a visual emblem of your authenticity kind of thing. So um, the guitar entered Appalachia because of the um, African-American workers on the railroads. Um, so I, I talked to people. Um, I, I talked to one woman, for example, who said that her grandmother, when she was a little girl, used to sneak out of the house at night and go over to the railroad camp. Um, because uh, when the day was over, they would be singing. And these black guys would be pulling out these, you know, kind of, once again, probably extremely homemade guitars. And the thing that really appealed to people was the flattened third, you know, the blue note. So um, there are a number of really well-established country musicians at the time who deliberately sought out these railroad crews um, so they could listen to them play because they loved that, um, you know, that, that flattened third, that, that characteristic blues sound. Um, and um, that really comes from two revolutions that happened at the same time, one of which people know about in the UK and the other one they typically don't. And the one they know about, of course, is the birth of the blues and, you know, all of those stories, WC Handy stories, etc., Handy, by the way, hated the guitar. Um, mm. he, 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 because he wanted his orchestra to be respectable and well-paid. And he saw, there's a very famous story from his autobiography of him seeing this guy playing a guitar with a knife as a slide. But his tone is contemptuous. You know, he's this ragged guy, down at heel guy, making this awful sound. Um, so the whole notion of, of W.C. Handy is the father of the blues. It comes from W.C. Handy's press agent, you know. Yeah. So, so that's the story that people in the U.K. tend to know. The one that, other, that people in general don't know nearly as well is the story of the Hawaiian guitar, which was infinitely more important, infinitely. So um, there, was, there was one point, I think it was just before, no, just uh, yeah, just before the First World War, I think it was, say, 1911, something like that, when every piece of sheet music on the top 20 sheet music sales was a Hawaiian piece. The, um, there was a Hawaiian musical on, called Bird of Paradise on Broadway, which was the most popular. I mean, it makes perfect sense. You've got girls in grass skirts. This is like post-Victorian U.S. It's like, what better sales pitch can you want? 
Um, but the Hawaiian guitar was that that was that boom lasted from roughly 1903 until the early 1950s. So there was there were actually Hawaiian guitar rooms in hotels in New York, for example, um, right up until the early 1950s. Um, there there was people most people learnt the guitar through Hawaiian guitar correspondence schools. I mean. Can you imagine learning the guitar, let alone the Hawaiian guitar? Yeah, yeah. Correspondence. It's incredible. But it was so sexy and it was so new and it was so melodic because, you know, all the guitars are tuned to, you know, typically to open G or something like that. Yeah. Um, no one had ever heard anything like it. Um, and so the early bluegrass musicians or the musicians playing what came to be known as bluegrass were hillbilly musicians who in their other incarnation would be Hawaiian musicians. So it would be really common for a band to be something like, oh, I don't know, the, the Kentucky Serenaders um, on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, and then the Honolulu Serenaders on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And this is how the, the, um, the steel guitar made its way into country music because it would be the same musicians using the same instrumentation, um, just wearing different clothes. They weren't wearing their, their, their cowboy outfit. They were wearing, you know, their whatever they thought a Hawaiian outfit looked like. Mm. And the guitar became very much, um, I guess, through some of the, the early musicians like Jimmy Rogers and Mabel Carter became sort of central to the rhythm sound of, of, of folk music and, and so what yeah, was old-time music at the time. But it was definitely... Um, as you mentioned in the book, a sort of sense from the old time music community, the guitar somehow ruined things because it forced a, a sort of chordal structure on things. You know, traditionally you had fiddle tunes and everybody played the melody. There wasn't this sense of what the chords were and what the accompaniment was supposed to be. And things were allowed to be a bit more free, and particularly some of the modal tunes could be a bit more ambiguous. And then all yeah. of a sudden you've got a guitar playing rhythm and it forces a structure on things a little bit. Um, yes, there are. there's all kinds of interesting um, theory written about that. Um, and actually, you can find the same thing in Europe. And my memory is deserting me here, but there were, I believe it was 14th century Italy. Guitar was extremely popular, especially among women. And there were, there were one or two players whose names have gone down in history. So they must have been, you know, not only influential, but good, who introduced chords. And um, so that was the... As you say, up until then, it had probably been a monophonal um, instrument, um, as, you know, the oud still is, for example, you know, mm. to a large degree. And so the quarterphone, um, it would be fascinating to see where that quarterphonic change you know the guitar as a chord player, as a rhythm player, as a uh, the 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 instrument that holds uh, all the other rest of the structure together. Um, it, it probably took place at different times in different places. Yeah, yeah, and and sort of alongside that, um, there's a development of the guitar as a sort of physical thing, to particularly the acoustic guitar, as there were no electric guitars at this point, but just. 
the idea of a 12 fret dreadnought becoming a you know 12 fret guitar becoming a 14 fret guitar becoming a dreadnought and um and i think you, the way you describe it in the book is that every i think the actual quote is everything important that happened to the guitar actually happened between 1928 and 1941 the guitar went from being a 19th century instrument to a modern instrument in just 14 years and um, okay okay wait a second that was spooky you must have been reading that. You didn't just quote me from memory. No, I do my prep, don't worry. Oh, <laughs> because I can't I told, remember these things. You are, you are a great interviewer. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, I just, uh, yeah. No, no, go. go. Well, right, so let's talk about those changes. Um, so the guitar was not originally a jazz instrument because it wasn't loud enough. Hmm. And it only became a jazz instrument because, and, and the, the rhythm instrument was a banjo. Um, it only became the uh, rhythm instrument of jazz bands because of recording. It turned out the banjo was extremely hard to record, as anybody who's played a banjo near a microphone will attest. And as a number of players would play both, then um, I think in the book I actually talk about, I, I quote somebody who would literally do that, you know, when playing gigs, he would play the banjo, but in, in the studio, he would play the guitar. Hmm. So, um, and, and then you, you wind up during the 30s of having this great tradition, jazz bands, of the uh, guitar player. Uh, well, it's in, in Sultans of Swing, right? In Dire Straits, you know, check out G Guitar George. He knows all the chords, Right. Be strictly a rhythm man. He doesn't want to make it like howl and sing or whatever the line is. And that's how the guitar came into jazz. And so Django Reinhardt and um, uh, Charlie Christian were very much the outliers in, in, in the jazz tradition. Um, in the Hawaiian tradition, which is the really important one, Hawaiian music was so popular and the guitar was a relatively quiet instrument, as we know. And the Hawaiian guitar, especially if you're playing it on your lap, the sound is not going out toward the audience, it's going up towards the rafters. And um, so they tried all kinds of things to try and make it louder, such as, you know, extra heavy-duty strings and all this kind of thing. But um, the Hawaiian guitars were the first ones to be amplified. And this is... This is, again, really interesting in terms of cultural history because most of America in the 20s and 30s had no electricity. The Rural Electrification Act uh, was, I think, passed in like 31 or something like that. But, you know, there was a lot of places with no electricity. Hmm. And so consequently, the whole idea of using electricity to amplify your guitar was sort of a non-starter, except that music was so popular. You know, you, you're jamming 2,000 people into what is essentially a large barn. And the people at the back, you know, all you can hear is the fiddle player stamping his heel, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and so um, I, have, I found this just incredible story of this, um, this band. Um, of course, it was a, uh, this was a, a Cajun slash Hawaiian band. And they would travel around in their, you know, their large beater of a car. Um, and they, when they got to a gig um, at the Evangeline oil field, for example, they would jack up the rear wheels of the car and run a belt around the axle to a generator. 
And so the car would just sit out there puttering away, you know, kind of burning gas. Um, and the generator would run electricity into, um, you know, the main building in the, in the, uh, the oil field. And the 2,000 people in there would be kind of going, wait a second, where is this noise coming from? Because, of course, you know, they had speakers up and, and they, they had never mm. seen anything like this. And, of course, the first guitar built with a um, pickup was a Hawaiian guitar. Um, and that's uh, how that's despite the um, kind of um, self-myth-making of Les Paul, um, that was how all the changes took place. Um, Les Paul famously, you know, put a, a set of strings and a pickup on a, on a log, like a four by four or something. Mm. Basically, once again, it was Gibson's publicity people who were saying, and look, oh, although I think he may have been working for Epiphone at the time, actually, he did that. But basically, the PR people said, look, we have invented the electric guitar. In fact, it had already been around for about eight years at that point and was almost exclusively used for playing Hawaiian music. And then, and then, very much in the same period, um, the acoustic guitar began to change. And I think you highlight the point being uh, a jazz banjo player coming in and saying, "Look, you know, I need more than twelve frets to work with. What can you do about that?" Hmm. And that's sort of being the the catalyst for the guitar as we know it. You know, this sort of steel string acoustic guitar becoming what we're what we play now. Um, yes, although um, I I came across these. One of the wonderful things about doing this research is that because the guitar was not regarded or taken seriously in any way, um, it meant that when I did this search, so the New York Times had just become available in a searchable format. And so I looked at every reference to the word guitar from 1851 onwards. Yeah. And boy, was that fun. Huh. Um, and because invariably the guitar was kind of there. It wasn't the point. It was there in the corner. Um, and so, for example, Bonnie and Clyde, I tell this story in the book, their first um, episode in their life of crime was to hold up a, a general store at night when the guy was, the owner was already in bed by get standing below his window and shouting up that they needed to buy guitar strings. Um, anyway, so, um, in all this research, I kept on coming across um, all kinds of vernacular guitars and guitar making and guitar. Uh, so uh, uh, for all of the histories that are told by the guitar companies, I'm convinced that the majority of guitars up until Sears Roebuck really got involved were um, handmade and were made locally. Um, the, uh, the, so the other change that happened in, in the 30s, uh, late 20s and 30s, was this kind of um, vertical integration or, if you like, devil's bargain between um, hillbilly music, Sears Roebuck, and radio. So because Sears Roebuck owned uh, one of the most powerful radio stations in the country, and um, because that was listened to, this was WGN, um, because it was listened to over much of the country, because that had incredibly powerful um, signal, 
And the, the, the very popular programs were bond dance programs. Sears realized, wait a second, Gene Autry. So they take Gene Autry out of, out of nowhere and he becomes their guy. So um, he, they, he, you can buy the Gene Autry guitar with a picture of a, like a cowboy stenciled on it through the Sears catalog. You can buy his records through the Sears catalog. You can buy the... Um, the record needles that you need to play the records through Sears catalog. And all of these are promoted on the air through the barn dance programs. Um, and um, so you had several things happening simultaneously. You had the myth of the singing cowboy. I have this great yeah. quote where a cowboy says, you know, by the end of the day, your throat is too full of dust to do any singing. The only cowboys who sang were the, were the, Hispanic cowboys, they sang. Um, um, and then um, along with that and the rise of first radio and then film, you have singing cowboy films. You have the marketing of the cowboy. So did you know who wrote Home on the Range? No idea. Cole Porter. <laughs> it's actually... Um, one of it's a typical Cole Porter tongue-in-cheek song. When you listen to the words, you realize that it was not written by anybody who had ever been near the range. It was Franklin Delano Roosevelt's favorite song, which says a lot because this guy's uh, you know an aristocrat um, from New York State. Um, but the the myth of the singing cowboy was really tied in with the guitar because partly because um, the Spanish. Cowboys had guitars, um, partly because by then, as you say, you've got some pretty famous people, such as Mabel Carter, Jimmy Rogers, etc., who were already playing the guitar, but also for all the usual reasons, the guitar is portable. Yeah. Um, you can play it to a bunch of people. Um, if you By then, they've got the bracing right, so you can have steel strings and you can play with a certain degree of volume. Um, it's ideal for, uh, for one voice, or it will also carry two or three. So you've got the Golden Girls of the West, you know, their publicity shows them all in their cowboy, cowgirl outfits surrounding, you know, their, their guitars. It was, it was this branding thing. And, and Sears, Sears Roebuck was really responsible for a great deal of that image making. And it's interesting that the company that is particularly associated with that period of change um, in acoustic guitars is Martin. And yet, um, I think you mentioned at one point that, you know, it's entirely possible that Martin wouldn't have survived the Depression without ukuleles to sort of exactly. move back to the Hawaiian craze. And that if, if ukuleles hadn't sold in the volume they did, they may not have been around to make these yeah. amazing sort of pre-Second World War guitars that everybody, you know, reveres now. Yeah, so... Um, the thing to remember about music, and, and of course you know this already, I'm just sort of bringing it up, is that most music that is played at any t given time is already 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years out of date. Um, and so uh, it, even if amongst the cognoscenti, you know, the Hawaiian boom was dying out, um, it still is the de facto um, music of choice, you know. Um, and so you find people, um, 
in the 40s talking about listening to the radio and listening to Fats Waller. You know, so Thomas Waller, fantastic musician, amazing guy, but he was not playing in the 40s, nor was he cutting edge in the 40s. He was just that good, you know. Um, yeah. And so, and, and, and so the um, getting back to bluegrass again, um, so you have this hillbilly tradition, which, um, according to legend, anyway, began um, when a talent scout, an A&R man, went down um, to the to Bristol, Tennessee, and the the, the joke there is that. Um, again, it's this this issue of sampling. One of the the, the um, recordings he did was of this guy who sang with that kind of high high voice that we now associate with bluegrass singing. Right? Apparently, all of the other musicians around him thought he was just a waste of time. They actually prided themselves on their baritones. They all had these operatic voices. And so this was, again, this was New York saying, this is what the hillbillies do. You know, this guy sounds strange. You know, the definition of a bluegrass band is three singers sharing a single sinus. No. Um, and likewise, um, uh, the, you know, he, he just happens to hit on certain things um, and they become sellable out of a kind of a, a, a quaintness. And, and if you go to Kentucky nowadays, people will still tell you that they are fighting the Beverly Hillbilly stereotype or the um, deliverance stereotype. Um, so, yes, um, you have uh, the development of, of that kind of, um, you know, old-time music or, or Americana music. Um, and thanks to Mabel Carter and others, the guitar becomes, you know, a part of it, especially with those, you know, low string um, uh, riffs that she, she played. Um, interestingly enough, when electric guitars become available, um, they, everyone starts playing electric guitars. Duh, they're easier to play and they're louder. Um, and so um, Doc Watson, when he was discovered, he was playing an electric. And because Doc Watson got swept up in this whole kind of folk revival movement um, in the very early 60s, um, he had to relearn. They said, we want you to play acoustic, right? So he had to relearn all of these tricky runs, you know, on an acoustic guitar, which is quite a feat. I mean, if you're a player yourself, you know, that's a lot yeah, harder. Yeah, yeah, yeah totally. And um and that sort of folk revival was instrumental in the sort of popularization of the guitar in what was becoming American culture and what had become, I guess, by that point, a certain a certain strand of American culture anyway. Um, and it, it became, uh, as you say, sort of an instrument of, of seducers and introverts, but also then became an instrument of protest and an instrument that, that if you, just by carrying a guitar, it said a thing about you. You know, it was, it was an anti-establishment thing or, a you know, a sign of freedom, um, a sign of and independence. Authenticity. Yeah. authenticity, right? So interestingly enough, if you look at the kind of New York scene around Washington Square, um, why didn't they take up the banjo? And the answer is the banjo just seemed too loud and 
awkward and and kind of raw. But the guitar was was much more sort of acceptable. Um, as anyone will know who has listened to a banjo being played in a telephone box, for example. Um, and um, so the guitar then became this symbol of authenticity. And so the protest um, musicians accept the, um, the Lead Bellies and uh, the Doc Watsons and um, uh, the, the older uh, blue mus- blues musicians um, as uh, sort of like the authentic voice of the American people. And so it, it becomes a very rare and very brief cross-cultural alliance. And is that is that another case of of sort of the moneyed, sophisticated North deciding what was authentic rather than that being dictated? Are we talking about John Hammond's now? <laughs> well, I mean, we could be, but there's, there's sort of an, an element of, you know, college kids in the 60s and 70s listening to southern or rural music and you know kind of making assumptions based on that and you know i've, I've talked to people for the i talked to tristan scroggins for the podcast and we had a very interesting conversation about what authentic means you know and and how you can ever pinpoint where something came from but that people can have a, a sort of yearning for a sense of americana that that isn't real or is generated yeah. from well, all sorts of sources and that also happens of course in the uk so um, if you look at um, all of the significant early rock musicians, uh, whether we're talking, you know, the Zeppelin guys or the Stones guys or the Beatles guys or whatever, um, Brian Jones in particular, I think Brian Jones got a job in a music store just so that when the records came in from America, if there was something, you know, from on the chess label or whatever, um, he could listen to it and, you know, play it to his friends and, and learn the riffs and all this kind of stuff. And, uh, there was this enormous friction um, and the question of authenticity um, best summarized by the Bonzo Dog Band song, Can Blue Men Sing the Whites? Um, and so, yeah, there's this whole authenticity thing. It's like um, if you're this guy who grew up in Dartford, Kent, <laughs> but you love the blues, are you still an okay guy, you know? And do you prove that you're an okay guy by sneering at Cliff Richard, like everybody did, right? Um, so, um, but on, going back to America, uh, one of the things that a lot of people don't know is that both the um, Grateful Dead and the Birds started out as bluegrass bands. Yeah, uh, and, and both sort of headed back in that direction again at certain points in their careers, you know, certainly... Yeah. The birds in a more Nashville sort of sense, but the Grateful Dead have got a strong strand of bluegrass and acoustic music running throughout the stuff they did. Yeah, absolutely. And and it's, I think the interesting thing is, with with all of that context and all of that um, sense of the the journey the guitar has been on, and it being about authenticity and being, you know, a sort of homemade, portable, intimate thing, the the bit of the book that I then sort of found fascinating was this idea of the emergence of a vintage market and guitars <laughs> becoming like, yes. you know, either stupidly expensive or to be hung on walls or put in bank vaults or yes. becoming the absolute opposite of what, what they'd been yeah. when they were created, you know? And again, this all comes down to one guy whose name is George Groon. I've been to George Groon's guitar shop in uh, Nashville 
And um, yeah, basically he did this very clever thing where he got together a bunch of old guitars and then he wrote the book that valued old guitars so that you could look at the book and see how, you know, how valuable. And what that meant was that he could set the prices for his own guitars. And, and as a result, you, you went from a situation like, um, so I'm a friend with a guy called Paul Asbell, who is a, um, a electric and acoustic blues player, grew up in Chicago, playing with a bunch of those guys. And, you know, you could go to a pawn shop and you could buy a guitar for 25 bucks that now nowadays would cost you, you know, 25,000 bucks because of the, the vintage market. And where that sort of sense from, from because there's a, you know, I mean, it's a huge amount of respected players who choose to play guitars from the 30s and 40s and 50s. Um, where did that sense that somehow, is it is it partly because manufacturers suffered from mass production and quality control over the years and there was something just more solid about the earlier hand-built things? Or was it more down to marketing, do you think? Um. Have you played a double O Martin from the thirties? Nope. So, um, they are pretty remarkable guitars. Um, and the thing about Martin is, you know, he was, he wasn't a Mennonite, but he was from one of those, you know, very sort of Calvinistic European backgrounds. And, and he, when he moved to the U S and moved out of, New York City, he actually moved into that kind of community. And so Martin guitars look the way they do. They're like shaker furniture. Um, and uh, the guitars really have this extremely clear, simple sound, um, which for a certain kind of music is great. Um, they're not great. They're not at their best when you strum them. Um, but especially for fingerstyle playing or for single note acoustic playing, um, there's, there's nothing quite like them because later, as you say, um, some companies, especially Gibson, here I am again, knocking Gibson, um, uh, but to a certain extent, Martin as well, um, the standards really, really declined, possibly because they didn't know what it was they were doing well. Um, and the guitar boom Okay, so this is, the, this is the point where we say the statistic, which is that the guitar now outsells all other instruments combined. Um, and the guitar boom, which really happened post-Beatles. I mean, it was happening mm. already because of the, you know, the cowboy guitars. But um, post-Beatles, the guitar boom, it really, the market has to diversify. You know, we've got to have a different guitar than the other person has. And so you have a whole bunch of different elaborations in terms of, you know, body shape and decoration. And, and in the electrics in particular, you have all these inventions with um, pickups and whatnot. Um, so, um, yeah, if you... I have played three really amazing guitars, three kind of out of this world guitars in my life. And I've played a lot of guitars, especially for this, this book. Um, I, I started going to all these guitar festivals and being um, in, in, in invited to read from it and all this kind of thing. But um, one of them was uh, made by a Canadian guitar maker called Linda Manzer, um, who just is a 
astounding. Um, and she makes, I believe she makes exclusively acoustics. Um, although she does specific things for specific people, like she made a guitar for Pat Metheny called the Picasso, the Picasso, which has like 44 strings going in different directions and whatnot. So the, her, I, I wrote it. I wrote it somewhere in the book that um, I, I went to the Healdsburg Guitar Festival and and I um, I played one of her guitars and I said it was like being dipped in melted chocolate. Hmm. Um, and then um, I came back and I brought it back because I, I knew I couldn't hold on to this thing any longer and I gave it back to her. And it turned out that her other one of her other guitars that she had at the festival was outside being played by God. You know, so so that's Linda Manza. But right up there is this, um, I played a $100,000 D'Angelico jazz guitar from the early 30s um, at Mandolin Brothers in New York. And that was amazing. Um, You don't realize how bad your guitar is until you play a good guitar. And in particular, you don't realize how bad the action is until you play a guitar where it's like playing melted butter. You know, it's... Um, and I think probably in those days when you'd had little or no amplification and you had no effects, um, and you didn't have the machinery to do a whole lot of elaborations with the body or the style or whatever, then, you know, you, if you wanted to make a bunch of money on a guitar, you had to concentrate on the sound, um, Mm really came down to the wood and the bracing um and people experimented quite a lot with those um and um so yeah there's 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 definitely a point to be there's definitely an argument to be made that um once the guitar was electrified the emphasis of innovation and even the conception of what a guitar should sound like changed dramatically. And it's that that vintage market is a fascinating thing because there are luckily some some stuff is just incredible and and rightly expensive because they're not going to make anymore. And the wood is old, and the wood was great, and wood is harder to get hold of, and wood ages well, and all those things. But I remember sort of in the I don't know, the early nineties going to buy a telecaster and mm-hmm. toying between buying a new one and buying a 70s one and the amount mm-hmm. of people who said don't buy the 70s one that you know these three bolt neck they're awful guitars don't buy one um and yet the sort of gentle haze of vintage has descended over them now and they're you know they are <laughs> just because they don't make any more of them you know and they may or may not be great guitars i never bought one in the end um but you know there's a it's it's fascinating to see how things yeah. become expensive like you know i I sold an 80s heavy metal t-shirt from a gig I went to when I was a teenager a couple of years ago and got, you know, £100 for it because they don't make them anymore. Right, exactly. Literally because they don't make them anymore. And it's it's fascinating. There's also a degree of um, fanaticism. So going back to the very beginning of the conversation, the guitar matters so much in people's lives, and especially it matters at a particular age so much that... um, everybody is is hard pressed to remain objective about anything hmm. um, i'm not sure if you've ever seen one of those one of those websites where people are discussing whether stratocasters or telecasters are better i mean those 
those people are foaming at the mouth. I mean, in the early days of flaming people, I had the first flaming I ever saw was when somebody was dumping on somebody else for preferring like a Stratocaster to a Telecaster or a Broadcaster or one of those other ones. Um, yes, it's, it's the instrument that, especially when you're a teenager, is so connected to your desires. So I'm not sure if this is still true, but when I was at college, I knew quite a few girls who had a guitar in their room and they themselves might play a little bit, but they had it there so that when a boy came over, he could pick it up and play it. And that was part of the, the courtship slash seduction thing. Um, it's, it's like bicycles. So um, when I turned 55, I got the bike that I had wanted when I was 18. Uh, which was a 1973 Peugeot, you know, steel frame, the whole thing. Um, when we can afford it. Um, and that's, a, I think that's a really interesting bit. And as you then end up with people collecting expensive guitars who don't necessarily play them. Or, well, or you end up with this thing where the sort of, where the people, I mean, I remember being a teenager and being in bands, and we, you know, we had about ninety quid between us to spend on all our gear, and it was rubbish, yeah. but we loved it. And yeah. then these these sort of bunch of and weekend. By the way, people said the same thing. They said we never had the best equipment. And then the, the kind of the weekend warriors would wander in with the Mesa boogies and the custom shop Les Pauls and things, and <laughs> you know, and they weren't very good, but they loved having these. You know, they they'd literally go out and buy everything that Eric Clapton had, or you know, they'd. Yeah. They'd have gear that cost more than our houses, and um, yeah. and there is that glorious thing of the guitar. In some contexts, has reached a point where it isn't anti-establishment anymore. It is the establishment, and the guitar is, you know, it's it's gone full circle where it's now both of those things. So let's go back to bluegrass. One of the things that I love about bluegrass is you go to a bluegrass festival. I'm not sure if this is true in the UK, but it's certainly true in the US. And, you know, the big act will be playing on the stage, although the stage will probably be, you know, fairly rinky-dick. And in the parking lot, there are like 14 groups of people who have sort of struck up together and are playing the common repertoire of, of bluegrass. And mm. some of them will be good and some of them will be terrible, but nobody is turned away. And that notion of authenticity the idea of the instrument as being a form of entertainment that precedes or supersedes broadcast, um, the fact that it's relatively easy to learn um, and it goes well with, you know, these other instruments as well, whichever, whatever you happen to have, you know. Um, uh, I love the fact, and also the, the fact that bluegrass band names typically are very self-mocking. Um, I don't know if that, again, I don't think that's true in the UK, but in, in the US, if you have a bluegrass band, you better have a name like, you know, the Bog Trotters or the, you know, you know, something that implies that you've, you've barely come out of the primeval, you know. Um, and that's a very open and welcoming sort of tradition, yeah. which is quite the opposite of, as you say, uh, the commodification or the the collection of instruments you're never going to play, um, which I hate because 
you know, if you've got a great instrument, it deserves to be played. It should be, someone should be listening to it. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, go ahead. I, I was just going to say that's one of the things that, you know, part of doing this podcast has, has made me in a, in a small way attached to the bluegrass community in the States. Um, and just the openness and the willingness of people to talk to you. And I think that you're absolutely right, that sort of sense of festivals, not only are people sat around outside playing to each other rather than watching the main act on the main stage, but whoever's on in the main act on the main stage is probably in a tent with 150 people the next day giving a workshop and talking to people. And the audience are musicians, exactly. and the musicians are also the audience you know they 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 there's no there's not that big divide you have in in rock and pop right. where there's them and us which is in a way absolutely derived from the porch music tradition of appalachia so the porch music is you know your friends come over and you play on the front porch and um uh there were similar traditions around barbershops i think the everly brothers father had a barbershop I believe that's the case. And so they would, you know, they're used to people just gathering there and singing. Yeah, and it's such a social music. And that's, you know, and it's that. It's also got that thing of if you learn 20 bluegrass tunes and turn up any, anywhere in the world where bluegrass is played, you've immediately got a connection because everybody else will know some of those tunes too. Um, right. It's a beautiful and thing. And if you learn four chords, then everyone else is using those chords as well. Yeah, as long as you learn the right four. Yes, exactly. None of those like diminished ones. Oh, <laughs> but it's great. The sort of barrier to entry is really low, and particularly these days. You know, I mean, guitars have always been relatively cheap things, but the quality of affordable guitars now compared to when I was a kid. You know, you can you can buy a guitar relatively cheaply that's not going to physically damage you, and might make yeah. a nice sound even, and probably might last a few years. And that's yeah, you know, it's, it's brilliant. Yeah. So, um, I want to tell you about my second guitar. So my first guitar I got given by a friend of mine who couldn't stand it anymore and was getting a better one. But the second one I was given as well, and it was it was actually a flamenco guitar. So first of all, um, it had a, a crack across the lower bout where two whole lines of grain had fallen out. And I discovered that if you played a chord and then you kind of waggled your hand underneath the lower bout, it had this wah-wah effect as the crack closed. <laughs> but the best part was that it had friction pegs rather than machine heads rather wow. than tuners. And they, they took a lot of effort to tune. And so I would take it to a party and there'd be some guy there who was a better guitarist than I was. And he would come over and say, oh, you know, can I, do you mind if I play? And, you know, the, the, the ethic was that you couldn't say, you know, piss off. Um, uh, and so you'd ha I would hand it over. And of course it would be somewhat out of tune somewhere. And so he would start pulling out these friction pegs and trying to twist them and wedge them back in again. And he would get more and more and more angry and less and less cool, you know, with the girls in the, in the party or whatever. And eventually he would just like give it back to me in disgust and, and stamp off. Um, so I, here's, here's to terrible instruments. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think we've all had one. I think everybody's had one at some point. Uh, and here's to great instruments as well. And, uh, do you, yeah. are, you, are you still playing the, the guitar you had built? Is that still your main yeah, guitar? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. A, a lifetime instrument. Oh, very much so. Yeah. Um, and it, it sounds better all the time. Um, and I play it, um, just, you know, acoustic. I also play it through a little amp. Um, and, um, uh, your, your listeners can't see this, but I have the, you know, the, the acrylic fingernails, um, because as we know, steel strings will do a number on your fingernails. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
usually not too much of a problem for the bluegrass players. Correct. Brilliant. Well, it's been such a such a pleasure chatting to you. It's um, I think it's a fascinating topic, and it's something you can talk about for forever. But um, it's just been brilliant. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Cheers. Take care. Cool. I really enjoyed that. I hope you did too. Um, full of just really interesting stuff. Loads of stuff I didn't know. Um, yeah, fascinating. So I'll stick a link in the show notes to Tim's book so you can go and grab a copy and read the, the sort of full story. It's definitely worth a read. Um, one, of the, one of the best books about guitar I've read in a long time. Um, yeah, so have a great week, everybody. I will see you next week with more tunes. Um, next interview is hopefully going to be with a mandolin player. Mixing's up a bit again. Um, but yes, I will speak to you next time. Have a great week. Happy picking. Bluegrass Jamalong is proud to be sponsored by Collings Guitars and Mandolins, making some of the finest guitars and mandolins in the world since the 1970s. Visit collingsguitars.com and find out why.